0: doll hey doll I'm your host Paula and I'm your host Cynthia and we are dolls, dolls and doom and Paula I have quite a case for you today I can't wait I'm excited to tell you about it it's a sad one uh-oh so on Monday October 24th 2011 college students Sean Hall and his fiance Marissa Vogel were sitting in their apartment at 100 Market Street in upstate New York watching Dexter on DVD, they suddenly heard what sounded like a loud thump that they later described as something sounding like something fell over. And then they heard a scream and then they heard the word ouch or maybe it was no. And then clearly they heard the word help coming from the apartment right next to theirs. this apartment building is what looks like a large two-story brick house. It's absolutely gorgeous. The building's over 100 years old, and it probably was a big house at some point that had later been renovated into several apartments. And the apartment that this noise came from is a three-bedroom apartment where a single mom and her two young sons live. Now, because this is an old building, and they do live on the second floor, and they are two young boys, Sean and Marissa are pretty used to hearing a lot of noise coming from next door and I can totally relate to this. I've got three boys at home and the baseline is just loud but there was something about this particular set of noises that left the couple feeling very unsettled. So Marissa actually knocked on the apartment door to just check and make sure everybody was okay and when she did she heard On just the other side of the door, the click of someone locking the deadbolt, (gasps) but no answer. Holy crap. That's creepy, right? Yes, very. This would absolutely send chills down my spine. And Marissa obviously felt the same because at 5.07 p.m., she called police. Now, she did not call 911. She called the local police number. In this county, all the calls to the police are recorded. And she told the dispatcher that she wasn't really sure if there was an emergency or not, but she described what she'd heard and the dispatcher said that she would send someone to check it out. When officer Mark Wentworth arrived at the home less than 10 minutes later, he too knocked on the apartment door, but no one answered. And he did say it sounded like someone was walking around deep inside the apartment, so he kept knocking and still no answer. But now everything was quiet. He knocked again, and this time he yelled police, thinking that maybe some kids were home alone and they were taught not to answer the door to strangers, but still no answer. So instead of breaking down the door, Officer Wentworth had the building's maintenance manager called and asked him to come open the door with the set of spare keys. And while he was waiting for maintenance to arrive, he walked around the building questioning the other neighbors. And he learned that two little boys Garrett and Aaron lived in the apartment along with their single mother, Tandy Cyrus. Tandy Cyrus, hmm, that name sounded familiar. When the manager finally arrived, he opened the apartment door and Officer Wentworth went inside. When he walked around the corner, he saw a young boy laying on his back in the master bedroom with his head facing the door. His arms were at his side and his legs were close together. He was wearing a t-shirt and blue and white checkered shorts. The room was in order and the bed was made. Other than the unresponsive little boy on the floor, everything appeared to be exactly as it should be. Now Wentworth immediately checked the boy for a pulse and other vital signs. And thankfully the boy was still alive. The officer began performing CPR until the medics arrived and took over. The little boy was taken to Canton Potsdam hospital, only two blocks away from where he lived. But unfortunately, despite every possible effort, he could not be saved. Oh, that's so sad. It is. Garrett Phillips died at seven eighteen PM. He was 12 years old. Oh my God. While all of this was going on, police were trying to track down his mother, Tandy, and they were actually able to do so pretty quickly. You can hear in the police calls, dispatchers and officers going back and forth, trying to locate her. And on several of the calls, you hear either the dispatcher or a detective say something along the lines of Tandy Cyrus. How do I know that name? Or Tandy Cyrus, isn't that John Jones's ex-girlfriend? You see, John Jones was a local sheriff's officer and Tandy had in fact dated him. And as soon as he heard the news of what had happened, He joined Tandy at the hospital, and after Garrett passed, Officer John Jones decided to spend the night with Tandy that evening. Now, while Tandy and John and the other family members were still at the hospital with Garrett, back at their apartment, officers were taking a good look at the scene, trying to figure out what happened to this little boy. Twelve-year-old boys don't just die. However, Garrett's father had actually died of a sudden aneurysm when Garrett was only 18 months old. So there was a family history of sudden death, but still, even though there was no obvious cause of death, police immediately suspected foul play. While he was surveying the apartment for any type of evidence as to what may have happened, Officer Wentworth noticed something strange. In one of the back bedrooms, a window screen was pushed outward and the blinds were actually hanging out of the window frame, like outside the window. Right. As if someone had jumped out of the second story window. Was there anything below the window? Um, Actually, in one podcast, the No Big Deal podcast, which I'm going to mention later, someone who was working on the case mentions there was like a little outdoor maybe storage shed or like an add-on. There was like a story down that he could have jump whoever onto. somebody could have jumped onto, And then from there, jump another story down. So it still would have been a pretty tall jump. Right. You can't survive. Yes. So the day after his death, an autopsy was performed on Garrett, revealing that the cause of death was strangulation. Garrett Phillips had been murdered. The morning after Garrett's death, Tandy was asked to come into the police department to go over the results of the autopsy and to be interviewed about the events of the night before. The entire time she was at the police department, through every single interview, and as a police officer told her that her baby boy had been murdered, Officer John Jones sat right beside her the entire time holding her hand. Paula, who do investigators look at when someone's murdered? The people closest to them. Absolutely. It's very rare that actually a child is killed by someone that they don't know. Exactly. So almost immediately, police suspected Tandy's most recent ex-boyfriend, Oral, who went by the name Nick Hillary. So we'll call him Nick. That's what he went by. And Nick was a Jamaican immigrant who was the soccer coach at a nearby Clarkson University. He was also one of the few black men who lived in this very small town of Potsdam. I feel like that's going to come up later. It becomes a factor. Okay. Yes, I believe. How could it not? Right. I watched the documentary called Who Killed Garrett Phillips? And I highly recommend it. In this film, you get to meet all of the players in this story. And right off the bat, Nick Hillary is charismatic and super likable. He's handsome. He's charming. And watching this, I really did not want him to be a murderer. You know, you know that feeling? Yes, I do. <laughs> right. So Nick was the father of five children with his common-law wife. So they weren't legally married, but they'd been living together for a long time, and they'd had several children together. And Nick was actually still in a relationship with this woman when he started dating Tandy Cyrus.
1: Oh.
0: So obviously, when she found out that he was seeing Tandy, she kicked Nick to the curb. And that was when Nick and Tandy moved in together, and they dated for about a year. During this time, it became pretty clear that a lot of people did not like the fact that Nick and Tandy were dating. You see, Tandy was a bit of a heartbreaker around town. She was sweet and likable and pretty. She had a long line of men who were interested in seeing her, as I mentioned earlier, she had previously dated Deputy John Jones prior to Nick and allegedly those two relationships may have had a little overlap. It's probably fair to say that Nick and Deputy Jones could have had a little bad blood between the two of them. Completely understandable. I would be amiss to not just say it like it is. This was a small town, and sadly, no matter where you go, you're likely to find some small-minded people. There were some people in this town who did not like the fact that Tandy was dating a black man. Interracial dating was not very common at all in the village of Potsdam. And in addition to some of the locals not liking this relationship between Tandy and Nick, it was also pretty clear that Tandy's kids did not get along with Nick. It's alleged that Nick was a pretty strict father figure, and the kids, of course, they just wanna be carefree. All kids do. So there was allegedly a lot of tension, and it was no secret. It was well-known. They just didn't get along. In the documentary, you do not see this strict or unlikable side of Nick at all. Like, we just don't see it. But that's to be expected, right? Right. If I were being interviewed for a documentary, I would hide my worst side
1: (laughs) right plus if you're strict with the kids that's something that only the kids at home are going to see you're not going to display that in front of everybody
0: right one of the examples that was given in the documentary was tandy's brother was saying kids should be able to be kids they shouldn't have to come home from school and then spend hours and hours and hours in their bedroom doing homework Like no kid's going to be happy doing that so i can see it as a parent i see it but from both sides In addition to Nick being strict, there was also some mention of other kids making racist remarks to Garrett and his little brother Aaron Yeah, Yeah, about their mom dating a black man. Obviously, that would be very hurtful. Of course. And kids don't understand who they really should be mad at. So about three months before Garrett's death, Tandy and her sons moved out, and they moved into the apartment at 100 Market Street. And by all accounts, Tandy really did do this almost entirely for her children, It seems like she really cared for Nick. The fact that she'd been trying to get her boys and Nick to make peace for the better part of a year and nothing was changing, she decided that the romantic relationship had to end. I really commend her for that. I was a single mom for a decade, and I did date Venon. As you know, you were there. Yes. And during that time, you know, not everyone is cut out to be a step-parent. And that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It just means, you know, the chemistry isn't always right. And that can be really hard So I think this shows that she was a pretty great mom by putting her children's feelings first. I completely agree. Absolutely. So on the night of Garrett's murder, despite Nick Hillary not being family or in any way related to Garrett and Tandy, and despite authorities not having any proof that Garrett's death was even a homicide, officers called Nick and did a death notification letting him know that Garrett had died. Now, Paula. If you were in a relationship with someone for a year, you lived with them and you lived with their children. And then relatively soon after you broke up, you find out that one of those children suddenly died. What do you think your reaction would be?
1: They're looking at me as a
0: suspect. But do you think like you would ask what happened? Oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> I was just assuming that I knew. <laughs> no, like they just said Garrett died. Something happened to Tandy Cyrus's son Garrett died.
1: Oh yeah, what happened? Or, that
0: would be my first question. Right, yeah. I think that would be anybody's yeah. first question. You don't even think about it. It's just like, well, what happened? Yeah. Well, Nick never asked what happened, but he did agree to come to the police department the next day to answer some questions about some of the players on his roster at the university. So after Nick was notified of Garrett's death, he called an attorney friend of his in New York City, and he told his friend what happened and his friend immediately told Nick that authorities think he's the man they're looking for. Right. Getting a death notification for your ex's child is not standard, and being brought in the next day for questioning means that Nick is a person of interest. So at the police department the next day, Nick finds out that he's not being questioned regarding his soccer players, but that he's being questioned about where he was during Garrett's murder. Now, when I watch this footage, and obviously, I. I didn't watch all of it because it's hours long. I watched what was available on the documentary. But from what I saw, I would say Nick was pretty compliant. Like it's obvious the police think he's responsible for the murder. In my opinion, he really doesn't give them a whole lot of kickback until after he's been saying the same thing over and over for a long time. And then he seems to be getting annoyed, you know, that they told him he was coming in to talk about one thing when in reality, they really just wanted him to come in and talk about Garrett and where he was when Garrett died.
1: Right, that's obviously frustrating.
0: And I would imagine that if I were not guilty of a crime, yet I was being interrogated and pretty much accused of the crime for hours, I'd probably start to get a little bit of an attitude. I would too, for sure. And to me, that's just all this looks like. But again, I didn't see everything. I just saw what was available on the documentary. Right. Now, I did hear on the No Big Deal podcast, which, oh my gosh, they did an amazing episode on this case, and you absolutely must listen to it. But in it, the host actually interviewed Tom Mortati, who was the senior litigator for the police department on the defendant side of the case of Nicholas Hillary versus St. Lawrence County, because yes, spoiler alert, Nick did later sue the county for unfair arrest, some other things he didn't agree with. But according to that podcast, during this police interview with Nick, officers wanted to get a sample of Nick's DNA and Nick had refused to provide it. So police tried to trick him into giving them some. So while he's there being questioned and he's there for several hours. Let me guess, would you like a beverage? You're so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but Nick never touched that bottle of water. Smart. I mean, if you really don't want to give it, that's smart. Well, I would just take it and take the bottle with me. That's what I would do. But they also knew that Nick was a smoker. And so they brought him an ashtray and they told him that he was allowed to smoke, even though it was a non-smoking building. And Nick did smoke. But when he finished his cigarettes, he would smush them into this pulp. And then put whatever butt was left over in his pocket and take it with him. I knew you were going to say that.
1: (laughs) I knew it. Because not all people are stupid. Like, when they offer you things like that, they're looking for your DNA. Right. Whatever you leave behind, it's now ours.
0: Right. It's not normal to take your cigarette butt with you. Well, no. But I'm just
1: saying that people that do that are smart enough. Right. They're hip to it. Like, yeah, you're not going to get my DNA.
0: But I also think if I were that paranoid, I probably wouldn't even smoke a cigarette. Like, I just wouldn't touch anything. Yeah, exactly. Here's the big question though. If you are innocent, why not give your DNA? Why go to such extremes to make sure that authorities cannot get it unless you really don't trust the authorities? I can imagine that if I were a minority, in what has been reported to have been at least a somewhat racist environment. And by that, I mean the whole town, not necessarily the police department. Right. And I was being questioned regarding the murder of my ex's child, who did not like me, and one of the local sheriff's deputies had a personal beef with me because I'd slept with his girlfriend and then stole her. I might be a little paranoid.
1: That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah,
0: like I might be a little paranoid. Yeah. I'm
1: I'm feeling closed off. Right. And it wasn't
0: Deputy Jones in particular interrogating, but like he was in a position of power. Right. And he had a personal vendetta. Right. And I can't blame him either because I probably would dislike the person who stole my boyfriend or girlfriend too. Yeah, I would definitely feel backed into a corner. Right. During this interview, police obviously wanted to find out what Nick was doing the night of the murder. And Nick told authorities that he'd gone to the high school to watch a soccer game but that he never ended up getting out of his car due to there being a torrential rainstorm. So after waiting in the parking lot for a few minutes, he said that he left and then went straight home. And then later that evening at 7 p.m., he had a soccer practice at the university. So remember the time we're really interested in is like right at five o'clock, that five o'clock hour. She called police at 5.07, right after hearing the noise. So interestingly, we do know what Nick did that night at least for a portion of the night because it was caught on surveillance footage. So at the high school, there's one driveway out of the parking lot, and you can either take a left or a right onto Leroy Street. A left takes you south, and a right takes you north. So to get to Nick's apartment complex, you would take a right out of the school parking lot onto Leroy Street, go about a half a mile, and then take a left into the apartment complex in which Nick lives. So it's like a straight shot.
1: Yeah, very close.
0: Right. Nick testified that he had been at home that afternoon and that about 4.30, 4.45-ish, he went to the high school to watch this soccer game. He said he didn't know anyone at the game, didn't know anyone who was playing, he didn't know anything about who the high school was playing. And just as a side note, he didn't say this, but it's a side note, The college nick worked for had never recruited anyone from this high school before but he said he went up there to watch the game let's stop here for a minute is that weird to you paula yes
1: i was literally just going to say then why would he go he doesn't have a single horse in the race why are you
0: going okay so see i i disagree this is not weird to me and here's why i love broadway musicals and if the local high school is putting on a production of like guys and dolls i don't feel the need to know someone in the production or know someone who goes to the school or any criteria like that for me to decide to go watch the show. So to me it seems like soccer was Nick's Broadway. Okay, Like he enjoyed soccer. He was a soccer coach. So why not go watch a game that's happening a half a mile away from his house? Okay, under that context I do agree with you. To me it's not strange. Okay, Nick says he goes straight from his apartment to the high school without stopping anywhere. And to take the most direct route, this would have required him to take a right out of his apartment parking lot, drive a half a mile, and then turn left into the high school parking lot. But the surveillance video shows Nick not coming from the north, which is the direction of his apartment, but instead he's coming from the south, the opposite direction of his apartment. And he takes a right into the school parking lot. And he drives slowly into the lot and then comes to a stop facing a field. And from where he's parked, which is not even an actual spot, from where he's parked, he can't see the soccer field. But what he is facing is a pathway that connects the middle school and the high school. And it's the pathway that Garrett will be seen coming from in just a few minutes. Oh. So Nick sits in this spot for a few minutes and then he slowly drives around to a different part of the parking lot and he parks again. And this time he's facing trees and a fence. And again, from where he's parked, he cannot see the soccer field. Remember, he tells police the reason why he never got out of his car is because it was raining heavily. But prosecutors argue that it was a drizzle at most and they use this surveillance footage along with the fact that the soccer game continued to play And other spectators were seen walking around, some with and some without umbrellas, as evidence that it was not this torrential downpour, as Nick said it was. Interesting. So eventually Garrett comes along on his ripstick, which is a type of skateboard. I had to Google that. Okay, Yeah, I would have too. (laughs) And he's riding on the sidewalk along the side of the parking lot. In relation to where Nick is parked... Garrett passes behind him. Now he's not directly behind him. There's parking spaces in between, there's like open space, but essentially he's behind Nick's car. So if Nick were looking out of like his back window, he should be able to see Garrett pass by. And within about 15 seconds of Garrett passing behind him, the surveillance video shows Nick's brake lights come on. And then about 10 seconds after that, Garrett goes out of view of the surveillance camera after he turns left onto Leroy Street, headed towards his home. And then we see Nick pull out of the parking spot, drive to the parking lot exit, and then Nick turns left. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, onto Leroy Street, the opposite direction of his own apartment, but the exact direction that Garrett just headed. Now, Nick testified that he went straight home after the soccer game, straight home. He made no stops. He didn't speak to anyone. He went straight home. And Nick also admitted that the fastest and most direct way home would obviously have been to take a right out of the parking lot. Yet, when he was asked which direction he turned onto Leroy Street, he said he could not recall, but sometimes he takes a left to go home for no apparent reason. Now Nick's vehicle is never seen turning around and heading in the direction of his apartment and prosecutors allege that if he had turned left and then driven like all the way around a bunch of right turns to get to his apartment, he would have been picked up on other security cameras and he was not. Now I would be interested in knowing a little more about this statement in particular because we know he obviously gets home at some point. Guilty or not, Nick did return home. So it's being said that no matter which route he took to get home, he would have been picked up on security cameras. And they're saying he never was. And I think what they're saying is he was never caught on camera going home before his soccer practice. But I really can't say for sure what they're implying because all it said is we never saw his car going home from any direction and we should have. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, it does.
0: What do you think of this whole situation, Paula? Do you, would you ever like, take a left? Would you ever take the long way home?
1: Unless I had some reason to kill time, like if I'm waiting for something, but the chances of that are like slim to none.
0: I personally, and I know it's probably a different situation, but I personally take the long way home almost every day. So after dropping my son off at school, I have the choice to go through either a cute little residential area, which is by far the least amount of traffic, Or I can go through downtown, which is the most direct, or I can drive around the lake, which is by far the longest route home, but it's also the prettiest. And almost every day, I choose to drive around the lake because I like looking at the lake.
1: Okay, so given those three choices, I would either pick the cute little neighborhood or the lake.
0: Because it's prettier. Even though it's not the fastest or most direct.
1: Right, if I'm in a hurry, then I'll go the fastest. But if it's less traffic, or it's prettier, I'm gonna take one of those two
0: options. Okay, well I even asked my husband this question because I thought, you know, maybe men might be different than women. He had no idea why I was asking this and I never even told him it was related to an episode I was working on. But I just kinda wondered, is a typical man going to be more prone to taking the most direct way home? Because according to the prosecutors, to take any way other than the right is just absurd. Total asinine. Of course, he's trying to make his case. (laughs) Right. And I honestly thought my husband would say he would go the most direct way home. But instead, he told me he would not be opposed to heading in the opposite direction sometimes. And when I asked him why, he said, quote, I don't know if I was just taking my time getting home, end quote. Just interesting. Yeah, it like, is. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to go just straight home. Like, it doesn't make sense. And to my knowledge, it wasn't like if you go left, you get this beautiful lake view. Like, it wasn't like my scenario where... Right. So given all of this circumstantial evidence, and really right now that's all it is, it's all circumstantial. Very true. In addition to what they believe to be him not cooperating, authorities really did believe Nick was their man. So they told him they got a warrant to search his property and his person. Now I will say, later on, I've heard it said that they did not have a warrant to do what they're about to do. They just told him they did, and that is part of the reason why he ended up suing later. But this warrant meant that Nick would be forced to strip and have photos taken of his entire naked body, including his genitals.
1: Wow, that seems really excessive.
0: I don't know that it's, like, standard to have full nude photos taken. I've never heard of, of it being standard. possible murder suspects. I mean, it kind of makes sense in some ways. Right. If you think somebody murdered somebody, like, let's, let's look at your body and see if you have any marks or whatever.
1: Right. I understand, like, looking for scratches or, like, defense marks. But they're not going to be in places that you
0: have clothes on, right? I would assume. And again, to our knowledge, Garrett was not sexually abused in any way. Right, that's what makes it more sketchy to me. Right, but here's the big kicker. Nick was the only potential suspect who had this done to him. All other potential suspects, and really, I don't know if we could even call anyone else a potential suspect because everyone but Nick was so like glossed over. Anyone of any interest to the authorities at all, uh, and there were some, Whose photos were taken, and I'll mention one in a little bit, one okay. of, but they were all allowed to keep their clothes on. So during the strip search, authorities found a small injury on Nick's ankle and suggested it could have been caused by jumping out of that second story window. And the fact that Hillary never mentioned this injury to them caused them to think it was even more suspicious. Like he's hiding it. Right. Now the documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips, shows pieces of a video that was taken of Nick coaching a soccer game the day after the murder. And some people say that they can see him limping in the video and some people can't. From the part of the video I saw, I saw no limping. However, during questioning Nick did admit that he had a hurt ankle and that he'd actually hurt it about a week prior to the murder while he was moving furniture. So he did admit that he had an injured swollen ankle on the day of the murder. But the big question is just how did the injury occur? Authorities found footage of Nick Hillary on the morning of the murder going to the convenience store on Market Street and purchasing a pack of cigarettes. He was wearing a black hoodie. And Nick denied that this footage was of him and police never found this hoodie that he was supposedly wearing. Prosecutors, of course, point to this being more of Nick's lies, but could it be possible that it really wasn't him and that's why he denied it being him and also why the hoodie was never found? Hmm. Nick's alibi for the murder was his 14 year old daughter who had come home around 420 to 430 from the high school, right before Nick himself headed to the high school. And she testified that he came back at around 5 PM and was home for about 15 minutes and then left to head to the Clarkson campus where he worked. A man named Ian, who was a friend of Nick's and also his coaching assistant, he worked with him at the university, lived in a house on garden street, that was very close to where Garrett lived, less than 200 yards. Ian said that he was on the phone with a video game company at 521 p.m. and that call lasted two minutes and 15 seconds when someone knocked on his door. Now he wasn't necessarily aware of how long the call lasted, but authorities got the records and they could see. Two minutes, 15 seconds. Someone knocks on his door, and he testified he hung up to answer the door and it was Nick at his door telling him that they had a meeting on campus with one of their players who'd been injured the day before. And this was a player named Jacob. Practice started at seven that night, but they were gonna have this meeting at six and it's already like 521. So Nick left to head to the campus. Ian called the video game company back to wrap up that conversation. And then he headed up to the campus for this meeting at six, but Jacob, never showed up and when asked later jacob said that there was never any meeting scheduled and if there had been he would have most definitely showed up or coach would have benched him so nick is saying all this which gives him a pretty tight alibi he's at home he's with his daughter he leaves He's sent on footage and then he goes to ian's house ian's backing that up it's a pretty tight alibi yeah seems solid if you believe it but it's also very close ian lives very close to where garrett lives He's seen on the surveillance camera following Garrett. I can see it going either way. Yeah. Now, just because police honed in on Nick from day one doesn't mean that there weren't other people that needed to be looked into. Gregory Brown, a man who used to play football with Deputy John Jones, and remember Deputy Jones is Tandy's previous ex-boyfriend, and the man who sat right beside her holding her hand during all of her police interviews, well this man Gregory Brown said that he saw Jones enter Garrett's apartment 15 minutes before Garrett got home. Wow. He said that on a scale of 1 to 10 he was a 20 in terms of how positive he was that it was Jones he saw going into Garrett's apartment. Oh, that changes things. Lot thickens. <laughs> it does. So Gregory Brown was also a football coach at Clarkson University where Nick was a soccer coach. So he did know both men. And remember, this is a very small town. However, when he gave this information to authorities, Brown was actually an inmate at Attica. And personally, I'm always a little wary of jailhouse confessions and snitches, especially when someone's implying that a deputy sheriff may have been involved in a murder And I'm not saying that these things could never happen. We obviously know that they do happen at times. You know, we also have to admit there's a lot of times that there are perks for these snitches. And we've seen way too many cases where a prisoner gives false information to try to make their life a little easier. But according to Brown, he believed that Jones was the killer, but he just never bothered to mention it to Jones or anyone else. But he also went on to say that he did not believe that a black man could kill someone in Potsdam, New York, and then jump out of a second story window without having someone see him. Now, just a little side note, John Jones denied knowing Gregory Brown. They really had to push before he's like, oh yeah, no, yeah, I do know him. So when the prosecution heard this interview with Gregory Brown, I mean, this is obviously favorable to the defense, right? Right. The prosecution is required to give this evidence to the defense team, but instead they suppressed it. And this is in clear violation of the Brady Rule, which requires prosecutors to disclose materially exculpatory evidence in the government's possession to the defense. And then the defendant bears the burden to prove that the undisclosed evidence was both material and favorable. Prosecution later said that the suppression of this information was inexcusable, but they only did it because they had proof that Jones did not commit the crime. So it didn't even occur to them to hand this information over. Now, what is that proof that Jones did not commit the murder? Well, there's a video of Jones walking his dog during the time the murder was believed to have been taking place. And to quote one of the prosecutors, you don't take your dog to a murder. Right. (laughs) Very true. I wouldn't take my dog to a murder. But just because you're seen walking a dog around the time of the murder, I don't think necessarily means that you absolutely couldn't have done the murder. Like, I don't think that necessarily rules you out just because you were walking your dog around the same time. Jones's DNA did not match the DNA profile found under Garrett's fingernails. Now, that means a little more to me. Right. However, the surveillance footage does show Garrett on Jones's street as Jones is pulling into his driveway on the day of the murder. Well, that's interesting. Right. So, Garrett's on the street right there while Jones pulls into his driveway minutes before he's murdered. They were close in proximity, too. You know what I mean? Like, if we're going to hold all that circumstantial evidence against Nick, we have to hold it up to John Jones and anybody else as well. Right. Side note, John Jones, because of some of these accusations, some of this evidence, he was brought in and he was photographed as a person of interest. He kept his clothes on. His face wasn't even in the photographs because that would be considered a little lack of respect or whatever. Here we have a sheriff's officer and we're like taking photos of him and taking photos of his arms and his somewhat demeaning photos even though he's got his clothes on. So we're not even gonna embarrass him by having his face in the photos. Meanwhile, we have Nick over here taking like close-ups of the genitals. That
1: is such bull. Right? If anything is demeaning, it's being photographed completely naked when you're the only one that's photographed that way. That is ridiculous.
0: Right. That's why earlier when you said, does the race come up because he's a black man? I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I think we would be wrong to not say that it's a definite possibility. Absolutely. Here's the big kicker. After they broke up, Tandy sued Deputy Jones in small claims court, claiming he pushed her and used his profession to harass her and left her in fear of her safety and the safety of her children. Wow. However, later in court, Candy would claim that Nick Hillary forced her to do this. Okay, because Jones was the ex? It doesn't say why, so you have to kind of come up with your own conclusion. Okay. Okay, so here's, you know, a few possible theories other than Nick Hillary. So the first is other kids. There were some rumors that Garrett was hanging out with other kids right before he died and that they'd been roughhousing or even playing a game called Knockout, which I don't know if you've ever heard of this. But knockout is a game where you run up to someone and sucker punch them when they're not expecting it.
1: I've seen other like college age kids do it. I didn't know it had a specific name. Oh my gosh. Like
0: (laughs) so ridiculous. People are so stupid. Seriously. (laughs) So, you know, that was a rumor. And one of the other neighbors, Shannon Harris, had said that she'd heard rumors that Garrett didn't get along with other kids. And she'd heard some rumors that maybe some other children had been involved in his death. But that was pretty much the end of that. I will say everything I read said Garrett was totally popular. I don't know. We also know that he'd been bullied, you know, with the comments about his mother, right? Um, and Nick's relationship. So do with that what you will. Um, another theory, and this one is out there in my opinion, but in the documentary, there's a brief mention of the possibility of autoerotic asphyxiation because there'd been a bra laying nearby. For me personally, this one's a little ridiculous because Garrett lived with his single mother. He was found in her bedroom where her bra easily could have been laying around. Absolutely. He was 12 years old. And I think if that's what happened, it would have been pretty clear probably just by looking at the crime scene. But the defense brought it up more as like a way of saying, hey, there's other possibilities out here and you guys haven't looked into any of them. You guys just went straight to the Nick Hillary theory. So that part I get, but I do not think this is what happened to him. I don't either. Nick believed he was mistreated due to the fact that he was one of the few black men who lived in this small village. Prosecutors argued that though that may be the case with the residents of Potsdam, it was actually a college town, so there was a lot more of a diverse population than the defense made it out to be. But either way, Nick was ultimately indicted for Garrett's murder, and he was arrested in 2014. And he ended up countersuing for unfair arrest, for breach of his rights with the photos and things like that this actually kind of opened him up because normally in a murder case, the prosecution doesn't have access to you can plead the fifth and all these things. But now because you're suing, you have to answer these questions. Right. So it opened him up to further scrutiny, which in a lot of ways is probably not the wisest thing when you are the subject of a murder. DNA was found under Garrett's fingernails and to test the DNA scientists they're looking for 15 alleles. And because of the size of this DNA sample, they were only able to find seven alleles. So seven out of 15. Of those seven alleles, all of them matched Nick. So later they tested again, and this time they were able to extrapolate nine alleles. And those nine alleles all matched Nick. So the DNA was consistent with Nick, but it wasn't enough to prove it was Nick's DNA. And then later, another testing process was done that came back with nothing usable, so it didn't help or hurt. And then finally, another testing was done, and this one was called StarMix. And StarMix doesn't actually test the DNA. They actually take a genetic profile and then compare it to a genetic database and then come up with a probability of it being the same person. So they used the nine markers that they'd had and the results were about 30 million to one that DNA belonged to Nick Hillary. Now the defense filed a motion to suppress this StarMix report saying it was junk science and the judge granted that motion, but not on the junk science, but instead on the motion's second point that the underlying lab data used to compare the sampling had not been properly validated. Now this was a huge win for defense and this told them something about this particular judge and the prosecution thought this was actually a really unfair ruling. On day two of jury selection, right after this motion to suppress the Starmix report was granted, the defense team moved to have a bench trial, meaning there's no jury. The judge rules on everything. Prosecutors say, hey, we think he did this because they just got this great ruling. The DNA evidence couldn't be used. This tells us this judge is a little more sympathetic to our case. Prosecution says the fact that he had just granted this motion and then they moved for a bench trial the same day is not just happenstance. Right. Defense says that they asked for a bench trial because it had been like four years now of everyone treating Nick like he was a murderer. He'd lost his job. His common law wife left him because she couldn't take the scrutiny. His whole life had really been ruined. He said, there's no way you're going to find 12 jurors who can look at me fairly. True. Either way, it makes sense. you have any guesses as to what the judge decided? Guilty? He was found not guilty. Wow. Based on circumstantial evidence. Now, Mary Rain was the district attorney at the time who failed to hand over that Gregory Brown statement in violation of the Brady rule. And after this verdict, she said, quote, I'm a hundred percent certain that Nick Hillary was the man. There will be no search for anybody else. He was the only person who committed this crime. I'm a hundred percent certain of that. End quote. Wow. Mary's license was later suspended due to allegations of professional misconduct it was ruled that Mary exhibited a pattern of disregard for defendants rights. That's it. That's the case. What do you think?
1: I don't know. I can see both sides too.
0: Yeah. So I watched the documentary first and the documentary was very sympathetic. This was actually a really hard case to prepare for because the most prominent information I could find was this documentary. And when you watch it, both my husband and I were like, oh no, he's totally innocent. And that's what I thought. And most of the research you find online point back to the documentary that makes him look innocent. But then I listened to that No Big Deal podcast, that attorney who actually worked on the case. And he had a lot of things to share that were not in that documentary. And I walked away from that thinking, I think he might be guilty. So I don't know, it could go either way. Yeah. The saddest part is there's a mother with no answers who's lost her son. Garrett hasn't had any justice. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. Tandy has never come out and done any interviews. But her brother, the one who said that, you know, Nick was kind of tough on the kids. Yeah. He came out and said, I absolutely know it was Nick. I know it was Nick. I will go to my grave knowing it was Nick. Even though Tandy hasn't said anything in the documentary when the not guilty verdict was read – She was seemed pretty upset. So it appeared to me that Nick was the perpetrator in her eyes. Okay. But even Nick said, of course she thinks that. Everybody's telling her that. Everybody's telling her that. And she needs somebody to blame. So that's a good point. And everybody's telling her it's me. So really interesting case. Please check out those resources. It's Who Killed Garrett Phillips, and that's available on HBO. The No Big Deal podcast, amazing. You've got to check it out. The Still Unsolved Mysteries podcast. And she seemed to lean more towards that Nick was not guilty. And I'll link them in the show notes. Wow, that was really interesting, but also frustrating
1: because I don't have a clear
0: opinion. Right. Well, thanks so much for listening to us. We just so appreciate it. Do us a big favor. Like us, follow us, rate us, subscribe, comment share with your friends, anything like that, that will help us so much. Every week, we are getting more and more listeners, more and more subscribers. We're super excited. And we just keep hearing that people really like what we're doing here. We're trying to bring awareness uh, to some unsolved cases, but also we'll honor these stories. And we are really enjoying going on this journey with you.
1: Yes. So thanks again for tuning in. Absolutely. Catch us next week. All right.
0: Bye. Bye.